doesn't blow over one who has the Guru's protection. This is the Bhajan Tati Vaunalagadiji on page 157. The hot wind doesn't blow over one who has God and the Guru's protection. The Lord's protecting circle is on all four sides. Pain and sorrow do not bother me, O brother. I have met the perfect Satguru who has made me as he wanted. He gave me the medicine of God's name and I am in tune with him. The protector has saved me and cured all my sickness. Nanak says, the Lord has given his grace and support to me. The hot wind doesn't blow over one who has the Guru's protection. Bhajan of Guru Arjan Dev on page 157. Gurani Sharana Peya Tateva Ona Lagadiji Gurani Sharana Peya Tateva Ona Lagi Tateva Ona Lagi Parabrahma Sharanai Gurani Sharana Peya Tateva ona lagadiji, Gurani sharana peya, Tateva ona lagadiji, Gurani sharana peya, Shogirda hamare ramakar, Shogirda hamare ramakar, Dukalagena baiji, Gurandi Sharana Peya Tativa Ona Lagadiji Gurandi Sharana Peya Tativa Ona Lagadiji Gurandi Sharana Peya Sataguru Pura Betia Sataguru Pura Betia Jina Banta Banaiti Gurandi Sharana Peya Tativa Ona Lagadiji Tativa Ona Lagadiji Gurandi Sharana Peya Rama Nama Okadadadiya Rama Nama Dandiya Ekaliva Alaiji Gurandi Sharana Peya Tativa Ona Lagadiji Gurandi Sharana Peya Tativa Ona Lagadiji Gurandi Sharana Peya Rakaliati Sarakanaha Rakaliati Sarakanaha Sababhyadamitaiji Gurandi Sharana Peya Tativa Ona Lagadiji Gurandi Sharana Peya Tativa Ona Lagadiji 
शरण पया खाओ नानक कृपाबाई खाओ नानक कृपाबाई प्रभु बायो सहाई जी गुरानी शरण पया ताओ न लाग दी जी गुरानी शरण पया ताओ न लाग दी जी The hot wind doesn't blow over one who has the Guru's protection. Our next bhajan is on page 215. The beggars have come to your door. Please give alms. True is your court where one gets true darshan. There one gets true love and gets across on the true raft. He came as the benefactor. Please give alms. Your glory is unique. You are the protector of the suffering ones. You are the gardener of the soul's garden. Please come and cut the snare of Yama. Your greatness is unique. Please give alms. Remove the disease of egoism. Show us the radiant glimpse. Make us hear the true Shabbat. Give us the alms of Nam. Show us the unique glimpse. Please give alms. No means are of any help in the paraphernalia of this world. Of what status was a jabe? It was Kripal who gave support. Please cut our disease. Please give alms. The beggars have come to your door. Please give alms. Bhajan of Sanchi on page 215. I did it. Da 
however we want to put it. It's absolutely, seems absolutely essential to me. And that the fact that the Masters forgive us is the most important fact about the past, I think. In my experience, this has been the case. Well, this is a section from the Conversations of Baba Sawan Singh. I'm reading from the July 1987 Sant Bani. This was taken from the book, The Call of the Great Master. And he is, silencing is talking to a group of people, and actually the, the selections here are, um, they vary. The people that he's talking to shift from time to time, because it's not all one place or one, one time. But he's talking to a group which includes a number of satsangis, uh, several uh, Christians, including missionaries, at different come they come and go, and a group of Muslims, and he is, and also some Hindus who are not initiated. So he is talking to a very eclectic group, and he covers a very great deal of ground. Very essential to me. This is one of the most crucial pieces of literature for understanding the path. So I don't know how much I will have time to read today, and I will probably comment from time to time too, but uh, every word is worth listening to. And this is Baba Sawan Singh. I think this was recorded around uh, the late 30s or early 40s. I'm not exactly sure. The great master replied, very few understand the true significance of Vedanta. In inexperienced, ignorant hands, it is sure to do harm. Bhakti is the path of devotion, humility, and meekness. The Lord loves these qualities, and they never do any harm, and they also shorten the journey. One outpouring of the Lord's love removes a thousand sins and purifies the heart better than a thousand intellectual gymnastics of the study of books. Rai Roshanlal said the object of the Vedanta philosophy was to prove the oneness or unity of jiva, the soul, and Brahm, or God. The ancient Vedantists took the help of spiritual practices and started their experiments with soul and ended in God. So far, said a missionary, I have found my religion to be the best. So far as reality and truth are concerned, they are to be found at the bottom of every religion, said Rai Roshanlal. To this, the missionary replied, I love Christ so much that I do not want to change my religion. One need never change one's religion, said the great master, but you must try to see Christ within you. His whole life was one of devotion, love, and service, and one can hardly find a more inspiring example to follow. But your love for him should impel you to seek him within you. He says, Seek and ye shall find. Will we be able to see him and talk to him? asked the missionary. Yes, 
in the same manner as you are talking to me, the great master assured him. But he died long ago, said the barrister. Christ never dies, said the great master. But to see him, you must first see a Christ in the physical body, a living master. Can't we see him by following his written teachings, which he left for us in the shape of the Bible, asked one of the missionaries. To this, the great master replied, let us be sincere and practical about this matter. The kingdom of heaven is within us, and so is Lord Jesus Christ. Can any book teach us how to go within? Does the Bible anywhere describe the mystic practices that Christ and his disciples followed for this purpose? Many elaborate books have been written giving long details of yogic practices, and the first warning that the books give is never to start yoga or dabble in yogic exercises unless one does so under the direct guidance and supervision of a living guru. We seldom see anyone trying to get his bodily ailments cured by studying the prescriptions of a dead physician when he could easily get the services of a living doctor. Men seem to take better care of the body than of their souls, interjected Rai Roshan Lao. It is a law of God that his sons are always present in this world to help and guide those who need their help, the great master pointed out. We seem to think nowadays that perhaps God's power to send fresh messengers has been forfeited, remarked the barrister. No, this world is never without masters, the great master said with emphasis. People perhaps want us to believe that because my great-great-great-grandfather met a woman he married, I need not search for a wife. Very strange, said the barrister, and everyone once more burst into laughter. Addressing the missionary who had said that he loved Christ so much that he could not give him up, the great master said, Let it be kept in mind that one does not have to give up his love and regard for his religion because he follows the path under the guidance of a living master. Rather, his love will increase. He will become a better Christian when his soul comes in touch with the Word, which, the Bible says, was God. It is God even now, and blessed is the one whose soul gets attached to it. But suppose you see in your dream or waking state or in meditation a form who says that he is Christ, and in your love and devotion you begin to obey him and act according to his instructions. Sometimes he foretells things that come out true and thus gains your confidence. But ultimately you find that you have placed yourself in the grip of a negative power. Such powers abound in the astral regions. How will you be able to be sure that you are dealing with the true Christ? You never saw him. Many negative powers try to deceive you at every step of your inward journey. The photos and paintings of Christ, perhaps those two are not real, said the barrister. Even in the case of the living master, these powers try to deceive you, the great master said. I once had to go to the hospital for a broken leg. The doctors and my officers tried to force me to take chicken broth and brandy and asked me to write to my master to obtain permission from him using these things. 
My master's reply was that instruction, his instructions were the same for all times and no compromise with principles could be possible. Sometime afterwards, when I was in great trouble, Kal appeared before me disguised as my master and said that there was no harm in using these things in case of necessity as medicines and for the purpose of keeping health. I wondered at the difference in the replies from outside and inside. When I looked carefully at the eyes and the forehead of the disguised figure, I found that it was an imposter, and as I repeated the five holy names, it fled instantly. The missionary professor asked, Did Christ preach or practice this system? There are clear signs of it in the Bible at some places, the great master told him. Can't the Spirit of Christ help us from above? Another missionary asked. No, it is not the law, said the great master. Those who came in contact with him when he was working in the physical plane were all made Christ by him. But today the Spirit of Christ does not work in the lower regions. He did his work while he was in the flesh and returned to the word from where he had come. If this all-pervading Spirit of Christ the Word, who was with God and who was God, could directly help people from above, and there was no necessity even for Christ to come to the earth. If there was a need for his appearance in the flesh at one time, that same need exists even now. This seems reasonable, said the missionary professor. The Spirit of Christ, the universal Spirit, cannot guide a man unless it manifests itself as a man, the great master continued. God has to put on the garb of a human being in order to make himself visible to us, to speak to us and to teach us. There is no other way. God, the unseen universal creator, always has been with us, but could we learn anything from him? After creating the universe, how could the Lord give knowledge to us about himself? How did they come to know that there was a God, the Creator? Intellect and reason made the confusion more confounded and created more doubts and questions. Wild guesses made the matter worse. This knowledge could be imparted only by a human being. We cannot see God in angels. Other living creatures are themselves ignorant. So God had to, and always has to, appear in human form to talk to us of other worlds, of our Creator, and how to meet Him. Without that, we cannot hear Him, or perceive Him, or gain any knowledge of Him. Only a human being can teach a human being. So God has to become human if and when He wants to give us His knowledge. Christ said, I and the Father are one, the missionary professor said again. To this, the great master replied, Someone who, under the guidance of a perfect master, expands the godlike qualities within him, ultimately develops into a God-man, a real son of God. The supreme soul dwelling in the human body is both father and son. Christ's eye did not refer to his body. His soul was one with the Lord. The body is also a necessary element. We knew Christ only through his body, said the professor. You cannot converse with God unless he assumes a human form, 
the great master reiterated. God also has his limitations. Can he converse with you from the heights of heaven? His omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence cannot be felt unless they find expression through instruments intelligible to us. Only a human being can teach a human being. In order to communicate with us, God has first to become human. A mother has to prattle like a baby to make her baby understand her. The master speaks and acts like other men, but in reality it is the Supreme Lord himself who acts and talks through him. Malana Rumi says his words are the words of God, though they are spoken by a human tongue. At another place he says, his hand is the hand of the Lord. His yes is yes from the Lord. Guru Nanak says, the Guru does that which God cannot do. In order to be in touch with humanity and to work on this physical plane, God must come down as a human being. Fancy how we treat him when he comes, said an elderly missionary. May I ask another question, if you don't mind? What has been the lot of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus? Where is he now? Where should he be, in your opinion? asked the great master. Why, I should think he must be suffering hell torture somewhere, the missionary replied. No, said the great master. He is with Lord Jesus Christ, enjoying perfect bliss in his lap. A loud, oh, burst from the lips of all the missionaries. Their leader, the elderly gentleman, said, wonderful. This is perfectly true. This is the way of the masters, the great master told them. They never look at our faults. There is no place for hell torture and mercy and love. Was he not punished for his crime? asked one of the young missionaries. His sin was personal against the Lord, and the Lord forgave him, the great master replied. Another question, sir, said the young professor. How did evil come into the world when God, its creator, is all goodness and love? Evil is a part of the order of nature, was the great master's reply. It was on the program from the beginning of time. Who created Satan? Is he not an angel and was he not created by God? Everything, both good and bad, came out of him. Here Rai Roshan Lal changed the subject. And then there is a, I think we are jumping to another meeting uh, in which there are a number of Muslims present. And there's a lot of questions about Islam. One of the Mohammedan ladies asked the great master to pray to the Lord to grant her request. It afterwards transpired that her husband was a candidate for ministership in the Punjab government, and the appointment was soon to be announced. The great master replied that he had never prayed for anything, and this remark quite naturally surprised everybody. Raizada Hansraj asked, Why so, sir? Prayer is allowed in all the religions. But is not resignation to his will much superior? asked the great master. Instead of asking the Lord to give us this thing and that thing, why not remain content with what he and his wisdom deems fit to give us? A Mohammedan gentleman said, But everybody prays. There are two kinds of fakirs even among the Mohammedans, said the master. 
One kind are Ali Dua, those who have recourse to prayer, and the second one, the Ali Raza, or those who believe in fully resigning themselves to the will of God. They never pray for anything. They abide by his bana, or maj, his will. Where's the harm in praying? asked the Mohammedan. The great master replied, The Ali Raza say that if God manages the affairs of this world, and he has perfect wisdom, does he stand in need of any advice, request, or suggestion from us? Or would he agree to accept any proposal which he considered wrong or mischievous? Should we say to him, please do this and do not do that? After all, what is prayer if not a disbelief in the wisdom of God and his goodness, put in Professor Jagmohan Lal. Raisada Hansraj then said, actually, prayer seems to proceed from the assumption that God is going to commit a mistake and it is our duty to tell him about its sad results beforehand. But there are prayers even in the Vedas, interposed Pandit Thakardat. One should pray only for the Lord's mercy and grace and for forgiveness of sins, said the great master. Why to pray for the transitory and petty things of the world? Malana Rumi says, do not blacken your heart with anxiety for worldly trash. Guru Nanak says, to pray to him for anything but Nam is to invite misery and pain. This aspect of prayer is quite new to us, remarked Revada. What strange prayers are made, said the great master. A few days ago I received a letter from a gentleman asking me to pray for his pet cat which was ill and had not taken any food for several days. Now this request did not come from some rustic villager. The writer was an educated and cultured European gentleman. People ask you to pray for their cows, horses, pet dogs, cats, and squirrels. Now what does this signify? They know, at least the satsangis do, that all pain and disease come as a result of the jiva's past karma, and this debt of karma must be paid. Kal must have his pound of flesh, if not from the jiva concerned, then from the master who takes upon himself the burden of that jiva. All this is perfectly known to satsangis, yet they prefer that their satguru should suffer pain rather than their cats and dogs. Doesn't that mean that they love their dogs more than their master, whom they profess to be their God Almighty? Pandit Takardat asked, Then one should not pray? No, prayer has its own advantages, said the great master. It brings humility and removes one's pride and haughtiness. Bringing one's helplessness before one's mind, it tends to make us devotionally minded, pious and godly. Our whole life should be a life of prayer. It makes us pure-hearted. Sir, can you give us an example of a good prayer? The Mohammedan gentleman asked. In reply, the great master said, If I were to pray, I would pray as follows. My Lord, I am ignorant. I do not know what to ask from you. Give me that which you think best for me. And give me the strength and wisdom to be happy about what you deem fit to give me and about how and where you keep me. I have no virtues, no devotion. 
My actions are all dark and sinful. I possess no merits, and the mind has thoroughly crushed me. For a sinner like me, O Lord, there is no refuge but thy blessed feet. Please take me under thy shelter. I want nothing more. Make me thy slave, that I may be thine, and thou mayest be mine. Marvelous, said the Mohammedan gentleman. But we do not get what we pray for, said Pandit Takardat. The Lord can give and does give everything, the Master replied. But the, question, but the question is, what should we ask for? I would like to relate a personal experience of my own in this respect. I was still in service. I was in charge of the military subdivision of the Marie Hills. Marie was an important hill station, and the government undertook a very elaborate scheme of water supply for that place. Water was to be brought from a long distance, and the pipeline had to pass through some very hard and solid rock. I was put, I was put in charge of this work. The first month's experience showed that if the work of cutting through the rock was done with chisels and other small cutting tools, the progress would be so slow and the cost so great that it would be impossible to finish the work within the time fixed and within the grant allowed by the government. In one month, we completed only a couple of furlongs and one-fourth of the grant was exhausted. I brought this fact to the notice of higher authorities and asked for permission to carry on the work by means of blasting. This permission was granted and the work began to show better progress. When we reached the last mile, which passed through the European quarters of the city, our pipeline had to pass through a road on which most of the shops belonged to European merchants and on which there was also a big cathedral. The owners of the shops and the clergy of the cathedral served notices on the government to the effect that if any damage was caused to their property or if their glass windows or other articles were broken due to blasting, the government would have to pay their losses. We again took to rock cutting by chisels, but the stone there proved to be the hardest of all, and the cost of cutting the rock was ten times higher per foot. The government was in a fix. A meeting of the high officials of the department was called, but they could find no solution to this dilemma. All the discussion and racking of brains proved of no avail. In the end, my chief turned to me and said, Have you no plan or proposal to solve this difficulty? I told him that just then an idea had occurred to me and that I would be able to manage this work if he allowed me to buy a few hundred sleepers of wood. By any number you like, we shall leave this matter totally in your hands and shall be greatly obliged if you will help us out of this difficult situation, he said. And after that, they all took their leave. I again tried the blasting, putting two or three layers of heavy wooden sleepers on top of the rock to be blown up. The trial proved successful and we progressed very well. In the beginning, I myself personally supervised all the operations and did not dare to leave anything in the hands of my subordinates. But by the time we reached the quarter where the big shops were situated, my subordinates and laborers had become efficient and expert in this method, and I felt quite reassured. One morning when the blasting work was proceeding in front of the cathedral on one side and the biggest European shop on the other, 
my servant brought me some milk to drink. On that morning I had left my house a little earlier than usual and before breakfast was ready, so I had asked my man to bring me some milk at the place of work. I told my men to explain the detonators that to explode the detonators that were set and returned aside for a few minutes to drink my milk. When I returned I found the blasting had been a complete success. Now let us put sleepers on the remaining two detonators also, said I. But sir, we have already lit them, said my overseer. Have you? My God, the sleepers have not yet been put on them. You will be our ruin, my man, I exclaimed. There was not a second to lose. I ran towards the two unexploded detonators to try to put out the fuse if I could. On the way, one of my European subordinates caught hold of me with both his hands. I cannot allow you to be blown to pieces, he said. Let me go, Francis, I said, but he would not. It was then that a prayer involuntarily escaped my lips. I had been very recently initiated by Babaji Maharaj, and I now turned to him in all humility. I would not have minded the effect of the explosion on myself, but the thought of what the European officers would think of us, Indians, to whom they had entrusted the execution of this most important task troubled me very much. Accordingly, I rushed to the spot where the detonators were. Everybody else stood aghast and breathless, filled with anxiety for my safety, as my subordinates and staff loved me very much. On getting hold of the fuses, I found that they had become extinguished after burning for only a quarter of an inch. How? I do not know up to this time. There was nothing wrong with them, Afterwards, those very fuses were used and proved effective. Ah, said the Mohammedan gentleman, this shows that God sometimes accepts prayers. But what is the criterion laid down by him for their acceptance? The great master smiled. Then he replied, Your eyes see the present. Your eyes see the present. The Almighty sees beyond time and infinity. We should obey him and receive with pleasure whatever he gives us. We should not even take any steps to ward off arrows shot by him, was the master's comment. It is said of Rabia Basri, the lady mystic of Basra, that she never took any steps to cure her illness or remove her poverty, accepting these as gifts from the Lord, said the Mohammedan gentleman. Continuing the discussion, the great master said, Guru Arjan Dev, the fifth guru in the line of Guru Nanak, who lived in the time of Emperor Jahangir in the 17th century, was severely tortured by the governor of Lahore on the orders of the emperor. He was made to sit on a red-hot iron plate, and hot burning ashes were put on his naked body. Mir, a Mohammedan fakir who visited him in his prison cell, could not bear the sight of such outrages being perpetrated on a servant of God. He therefore asked Guru Arjan Dev to permit him to destroy the region of Lahore and raise it to the ground with all of its tyrants and tyrannies. The Guru merely smiled and said, Dear brother, first answer me one question. Is all this being done against the will of my beloved Lord? If not, then sweet is the pleasure of abiding by his order. Tera bana mita lage. 
The world has often treated its great men very cruelly, said Raisada Hansraj. How cruel, explained Pandit Takardat, to torture a man simply because he does not worship God in the way you worship him? Why is that so, sir? the Mohammedan gentleman asked. Logic and love face different ways, said the great master. Love knows no law, and logic knows no love. Law and logic are meant for the affairs of this world. To the abode of the beloved, one can fly only on the wings of love. Sad ketab o sadwark darnarkun. Throw thy books and knowledge in the fire. Refresh thy mind with love of the Lord. Let the garden of thy heart bloom with the water of his love. Saints come and sing of nothing but the love of the Lord, his ishk. They do not interfere with the rites, rituals, ceremonies, or religions of the world. They simply let the world and its lovers alone. If a marriage is to be performed, they say, go and perform it according to the custom of your society or in whatever way you like. The purpose is only to unite the hand of the bride with that of the bridegroom and to tie them together in a matrimonial knot. Do it as you think best. If a dead body is to be disposed of, they say, bury or cremate it as you like. The child is born. Well, christen it as you see fit. God does not care to interfere in the petty affairs. He wants your love and purity alone. Trouble arises when the logician tries to force his theories into the realm of love and God. He wishes that the shariat, the rules of conduct laid down by the leaders of his religion for the purpose of leading a peaceful and orderly life in the world, should guide the lovers of God also in their love affairs with their beloved. They cannot realize that the love of God and God's love for his lovers is limitless. It cannot be circumscribed, limited, or confined within any boundaries. The lovers transcend all laws. They become merged in the beloved and become the beloved himself. Why was Mansur, the king of lovers, crucified? Because he cried out in his ecstasy, I am he. The barren philosophy of the uninitiated could not comprehend the height of his flight and rendered a verdict of blasphemy against him. Shamas Tabriz of Persia, was skinned alive for bringing a dead boy to life by saying, Arise by my order, after the boy had not risen when he said, Arise by the order of Allah. Great Kabir says, Karata kare nakar sake, sant kare sohoye. The saints can accomplish what the Creator cannot. Paltu says, Saints are so near and dear to God that he never refuses what they want him to do. The hair-splitter logician finds it impossible to comprehend this and believes that what he cannot understand is not possible, not knowing that there are realms where reason cannot enter. But the laws of shariat also must be followed, said the Mohammedan gentleman. Certainly, within their province, the great master replied. But passing beyond shariat and tariqat, there are the domains of ma'arfat, divine knowledge, and hakikat, 
merging in reality. A student should not always cling to his primary class lessons. Mystics have laid down four stages in spiritual development. Shariat, or code of life, is the first one. But living a good moral life is not the ultimate goal. After this, a seeker steps into tarikat, or the path. He has to search for a true master, and under his instructions follow the spiritual practices that will take him to the door of the Lord's palace. The third stage is modified, realization, in which he receives divine knowledge. Fourth is hakikat, to be one with the Lord. Now, who would like to remain permanently tied to the first stage if he has knowledge of the higher stages and knows that they are essential for one's spiritual development? Is the above your path also? inquired the Mohammedan gentleman. To this the master replied, the path of the saints to whichever country, race, or religion they may belong is always the same. It is the same for all ages and climes. It is not the design of any human being which might require some addition, alteration, or modification. It is the Creator's own design and was created with man, and it is the same for all ages and for all mankind. Sir, what is the Mohammedan name for your system of spiritual practices? asked the Mohammedan gentleman. The great master smiled a little and said, Muslim saint, there's a great deal was covered in this section, and I want to uh, go. Excuse me, I'm still not used to the placement of this microphone. Um, I do want to go over, to some extent, the uh, things that Baba Sawan Singh has said. The statement, "Where there is love, there is no law," which he has said in the course of this reading. And according to many witnesses, including Kripal Singh, this was his most characteristic saying. Julian Johnson, writing in his book With a Great Master in India, which is a record of his experiences with Baba Salan Singh, uh, said that this was the thing he said most often. He has a number of instances of him saying, where there is love, there is no law. It's extremely important for satsangis to remember that, I think. It goes to the heart of what makes the path the path. And that is exactly what Sawan Singh has been talking about, of course, is living a life in which our oneness with God becomes the ultimate and all-pervading fact. There is nothing else worthwhile. Other things are worthwhile insofar as they partake of that. To love another human being becomes a transcendent experience because that love comes from the love of God. And the love of another human being, selfless love of another human being, as Master Kripal used to say, love knows service and sacrifice. That kind of love can take us right back to God because it comes from him, even if it's applied to somebody who is not usually considered an incarnation of God. But according to the Masters, you see, everybody is an incarnation of God. So the love for anybody, 
will work in that way. Law is the domain of Kal. In you know, in in the Santnat literature, and in actually in um, as you could as Sawansing explained in this section, the Sufi terminology, the Sufi understanding of these things is identical with that of Santnat. In fact, you could say that Sufism and Santnat are two branches of the same thing. One comes out of an Islamic context and one comes out of an Indian context, but otherwise, um, in terms of what happens, they are the same. And the masters of this path are very aware of both, uh, both approaches. When Master Kripal used to initiate Muslim people, and I was present a couple of times when he initiated uh, Muslims, he would give them a different mantra. He would give them the Sufi mantra, which he knew. And uh, they would repeat names for God from Arabic, not from the Sanskrit that uh, most of us repeat. So they're very aware of that dual tradition, and they make very few distinctions. Uh, in Master's book, Master Kripal's book, Prayer, he does talk about living... He, he, he Actually, that book could be understood as a kind of a um, book-length elaboration on what Sawan Singh has just said about prayer, in which we live a life in which the presence of God is such a fact that prayer is not something we have to do, it is something we are. And this has been understood. Mystics of all religions have understood this. One of the Muslim gentlemen quoted Rabia, now, Rabia, her, her history, her, her importance in religious history, well, she has a lot of importance in religious history, but the things that she is remembered for, the tremendous influence she had on later Sufis, which led Master Kripal once to refer to her as the founder of Sufism, that importance hinges on her understanding of this point that you don't do anything to gain advantage for ourselves. You do things to get closer to God because you love him, no other reason. This, of course, fits perfectly with what Jesus said also, which Sawan Singh was referring to earlier when he was talking to the Christian missionaries. Rabia is noted not only for the saying that, was, that we just read, but she is, there's a famous story in which she was once seen walking down the street carrying a torch in one hand and a bucket of water in the other. Someone said, what are you doing? She said, I'm going to burn up paradise and uh, drown hell so that no one will do devotion out of desire for the one or fear of the other. Uh, God wants people to do devotion of him because they love him not because of what they're going to get out of it. This is a very profound, I mean, it's a, it's a point of view that you can be brought up, it's, it's where the difference between esoteric and exoteric religion is brought into very sharp relief. Because we can be brought up, I was brought up a Christian, attended the Baptist church, and I was very devout as a young person. And I never occurred to me that there was anything wrong 
in being saved in this sense, you know, in being saved from hell, in being afraid of going to hell, and in um, wanting God to save me for that reason. Loving God per se, apart from, you know, the great favor to me of not sending me to hell, as I believed, was not really something that we ever talked about. It was not something that ever was in anyone's consideration. I'm sure that there were people in the movement and are people in the movement who do uh, think like that, but um, I didn't know them, and it, certainly I wasn't one of them. So this this whole approach of loving God for the sake of loving God, which means accepting what he sends us with happiness. I mean, Rabia, there's another story of Rabia, in which three Sufis came to see her, and I don't remember the details well enough to say it, but they each had a hypothetical situation about the attitude that God wants. Each one of them, Rabia rejected. There was ego or selfishness or something like that in all of them. And she finally said that God wants us to love him for his sake, not for anything that we get. Now, in Salen Singh's story about the prayer, I've always been very drawn to that story. That the picture of Salen Singh as a young man working as a military engineer, you know, supervising civil construction projects is very fascinating to me. And I... Uh, I really wish I knew more about it, actually. But, um, you know, in that situation where he, is, he, is, he really does not want to set off an explosion in that part of the city, he has promised that he wouldn't, he is on top of things, he knows what to do, and yet it was done anyway. We've all of us been in that kind of position. And uh, the prayer that he involuntarily came out with does not really contradict what he is saying in the other parts. Why? Because that prayer came forth without thought from his inmost self. And as such, it was perfectly acceptable to God. I've often wondered, I, I brought up this story many times in satsang, my own experience when I had my stroke. And, of course, I, I didn't pray, really. I didn't pray. I didn't ask God for anything. But the feeling that I was going to be paralyzed for the rest of my life filled me with such deep despair. I have never known despair like that. It was, it was mind-boggling despair. It was end-of-the-world despair. It was worse than I would have preferred to die rather than to be paralyzed for, as I saw it, 30 or 40 years unable to do what I had always done, I couldn't face it. Some people, you know, are stronger than me. I talked with Ron Gordon, whom most of you probably remember, who is quadriplegic, and I told him how I felt when I was facing that, and he said, well, I don't blame you one bit. I uh, felt the same way. And um, it was... You know, not that I asked God for anything, really. I just wept and wept and wept, out of just out of the depths of my heart. And it was a prayer, and he answered it. And I've always felt, when I 
well, someone like Ron, who who would have liked to have, you know, had the same result, because my stroke was, of course, totally reversed in what at least one doctor told me was a miracle. Um, that day, I was actually paralyzed about eight hours, I think. Well, depending, I mean, totally paralyzed about 12 hours, and somewhat paralyzed about 36. But uh, once it reversed itself, I was totally healed. And that happened with no, nothing the doctors did brought that about. They didn't, they couldn't understand it, basically. They said it sometimes happens. But I feel as though I, I never knew um, whether, you know, what happened there, whether my karma was just a few hours, whether Master saw my despair and out of love for me took it on himself, thus shortening his own life and causing himself pain, or um, what? I, I don't know. You know, I didn't ask him to do it, but the prayer was there all the same. And somehow or other it happened. And I am, to say that I'm eternally grateful is, is really an understatement. It's, the Master has done many things for me, and I am extremely grateful to him for all of them, but I, that probably is close to the top, along with my initiation and a few other things. Um, there's no way that I can be grateful enough to be appropriate for that. what happened at that time. And that kind of prayer is sometimes answered. It isn't always, I guess, I, I don't know the difference, you know. And I don't know, except for what I said earlier, that in Samhain Singh's case, it proceeded from his life. It was not really something he thought about asking, but it was just the way his life expressed itself at that particular point, so that it came from his whole being. And his master loved him and um, gave him what he wanted. Something like that. Anyway, um, I think if we understand that our walk on the path, okay, and the path after all is something to walk on, it's not a belief system, uh, but in that four categories, which are Sufi categories, of course, Shariat, Tarakat, and so forth, um, the first one is the realm of exoteric organized religion. Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, whatever. The second one, tariqat, is the path. That's, and there's a difference, a very careful difference is maintained. And Samhain Singh says that in, for the, in connection with the lover of God, the things that matter so much to the first part, the tariqat, the shariat, excuse me, are uh, irrelevant to people who are walking on the path. It's okay, it doesn't really matter. We can do whatever we want. In the world today, people are killing each other and themselves, a lot of people, over grounds just like this. You know, the ways in which we worship God outwardly, the names we use to address him, the kind of clothes we wear <coughs> while we're doing that. And people are demonizing each other's religion all over the place. It's important to remember what the masters represent, as that is, they really do represent all religions. 
<coughs> there's no exception. People in all later on in this section, which I'll probably read next time, uh, Master Samhain Singh says very clearly that there are it, religion does not matter. All religions are the same. There are people in every religion who have reached God. And it, we don't have to change religions. We don't have to think in those terms. What we have to do is to love God and walk on the path. And the essence of the, the terms of doing that that are the most crucial is the fact that we are forgiven. Our karma is nullified by our love for God or we can say by his love for us. And this has been understood, you know, Sanchi has given one of his most moving discourses on the subject of forgiveness. And remember that punishment and reward, giving people what they deserve, which is the way a lot of us think without even trying, is cow. That is what he does. If we do that, we are imitating and following him. To forgive and not blame, to look past the fault, as Samhain Singh said, as Christ did with Judas, and Guru Arjan did with his torturers also, is um, what the masters do. And they will do that and will continue to do that no matter what is done to them. Mansur, that Samhain Singh mentioned, was crucified, and he was literally crucified, um, by fellow Muslims in, I believe, the 9th century A.D., maybe the 10th, somewhere around there, for saying, I am the truth. I am Haq, was his actual word. Haq is a Sufi name of great power and potency. It means the absolute God. And he said, as a result of his ecstasy from going within, he said, I am the truth. And this was seen as blasphemous. So he was crucified. And he forgave. Master Kripal used to compare Mansur with Christ. And indeed, there is a lot of space to, for comparison. He said, just as Christ said, and when he said this, he would say this so lovingly, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So Mansur also said, somebody asked him, what are you, what are you going to pray happens to the people who are um, who, who are your followers? And he said, well, I, I want them to have one blessing. And he said, well, what about the people who are torturing you and killing you? He said, well, I, I pray for them to have two blessings because they need it more. It's very simple. You know, we get, Master wants to bring all of us back no matter what mistakes we make, no matter what heinous thing we do, and he will use whatever he can to do that. So this, it's the beauty of the path. It's the glory of the master, you can say, is that like the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son in the Bible, Luke chapter 15, he wants to bring us back. His joy lies in our return. And this is true of everyone's return. And he will not rest until everyone is brought back to where we belong. So that's the, the beauty and the greatness and the simplicity and the wonderfulness and the love and the glory of the path. And we should thank God. We should thank God every minute 
that we have been so greatly honored in this life as to be brought into touch with someone who can give us that and should be the substratum of our life. All right, I'm, the tape I'm going to play is a continuation of the tape we started last time that when I was here. The Mass Master Kripal's talk, The Birthright to Become God. This part was probably, some of it at least, was read when I read it a few months back. Um, but we can stand to hear it again. And uh, I think, um, I know that some people have a hard time following Master Kripal's speech patterns and so forth. And there probably isn't much point in anyone spending a lot of time learning it now that he is no longer in this world and will not be talking to us, which is a matter of deep regret for me. But um, some of the tapes are very clear. And this particular talk and this particular tape is reasonably clear. And there's so much love in this talk. This, this talk itself is an example of everything we've been talking about. So I hope that some people told me they could follow it pretty well. So we'll hear it. This was January 19th, 1964 in Washington, D.C. I was present when this talk was given. I've never forgotten it. Master was so electric. You know, it was like the charging in the room. The room was packed. It was not a huge room, but it was absolutely packed at the basement of the Friends Meeting House in Washington, D.C. And Master was standing up, which was rare for him. Like Sanchi, he preferred to give discourses sitting, preferably cross-legged. And... Um, But in this, he was standing up on this occasion. His energy was just infectious. You know, so much loving energy was in the room. It was like it crackled with it. You could almost see it. It was so tangible. Everyone felt it. It was, I think, everyone present had a collective ecstatic experience of a very high order. And it, some of that comes across on the tape. Not, not really all of it, of course. All right, we will hear the talk. So to read scriptures is not sufficient, mind that. To hear the scriptures is also not sufficient. But there must be somebody who can practically demonstrate how to withdraw from outside for a while, how to rise above these shackles of outgoing faculties, open our inner eye, give a contact with him, maybe little ago. Once we do it again and again by regular practice, we'll succeed. If at first you don't succeed, then try, try, try again. This is what the Master does. To give a lecture, to tell you how to say prayers, how to perform certain rites and rituals, that any man can do it after a little time. How to act in pose, how to laugh, how to cry. But this is a practical question. Who knows it, who has that experience, is competent, he will give you some experience to start with, maybe a little more. And what is wanted there, he wants? Be still. Physically and intellectually. 
God cannot be known by the outgoing faculties, cannot be known by the intellect, cannot be known by the white layers of the pranas. It can be known only by the soul, like alone can know the like. When it is liberated, when it is analyzed from mind and outgoing faculties, this is practically now intellectually that appears to you, but how to do it? Whatever matters we are having now, reading our scriptures, saying prayers, performing certain rites and rituals, they all relate to the outgoing faculties. And this is something to start when you rise above all to outgoing faculties. Even with the mind, intellect too, you cannot, unless you are intellectually still. As a matter of inference, you might draw inference to come to some conclusion. But still the mind is working, intellectually working. What we must be intellectually still too. Then a sort of transport arises to the soul, and it is about. This is all we have to do. So when a master someone comes to the master, what does he do? He first, all these ten servants of the outgoing faculties, five, audition, sight, smell, taste and touch, working to the sense organs of the ears, eyes, nose, tongue and skin. These are to be controlled. If these are controlled, then how should we set in order? Or every servant to do his job. All right, you clean the room, you set here in order, you light the kettle, everything all right. So this is the first thing to be done. Those who are attached are given up to the outside enjoyments, pleasures, maybe good, excuse me, or bad. Both cannot rise above body That is why Lord Krishna said, good actions and bad actions, both are binding, like the gold chains or the iron chains. So this is practical. First thing, what we have at the feet of the Master, He gives you how to withdraw from outside for a while, how to rise above body for a while. One day cannot become an enemy. Rome was not built in a day. But once you get something by regular practice, by obeying his orders, naturally you become adept. The man who is reading in the MA class today, sometime he is reading in the primary. If those who are reading in the primary, they are given the same help and guidance, well, they can read the MA class. That is why it is says, Every saint has its past, and every sinner a man can change. In the decades, you see, can become saint. Valmik was a decade, I tell you. He became saint Valmik. He just related the story of Ramayana 18,000 years before it actually happened. So my point is there is hope for everybody. There is nothing to be disheartened. Only we have to see what experience is given, we have to develop it, 
without intervention of outgoing faculties and intellect. It does not mean you should not use your intellect. Understand, when you understand the sit and do, let mind not meddle into it. Because if your mind is just clutching, seeing, here, there, drawing innocence, intellect is working. And until you are intellectually still, you cannot take a step further. So this is the first thing we have to do. For that you are advised to keep a diary for self-introspection. You now realize the necessity, but how many are you who are keeping diaries, maintaining diaries daily? I'm afraid it may not be ten percent. That is why even if we do get something, we do not progress wonderfully. We must. So this is first thing we learn at the feet of the Master. What is the difference between a Master and an average man? He is a man all the same, as a doctor is a man all the same, like us. But he is known by anatomy how the system works, how the diseases arise, how can that those be cured. Similarly, this is a disease we are suffering, <laughs> those who are just adept, competent, going himself beyond these bounds, help others to raise them up, up. well, such a man is called a Mahatma. The God in him, you know, who can give you contact with God? No son of man can do it. It is the God absolute when it came into expression. You see, when he came down, then he gave the some teaching of the higher because he had seen it. The Lord has come, he knows almost all the way. In the man body, although in the man body, he is conscious of that. That's the difference between a man and average man and a master. So he says, when you come to such master, this is the first thing to be done. And we lack here, I tell you honestly. We are given some experience, but we don't live up to it. Dragged away by the outside prayers, knowing that God is within us, the priceless jewel, priceless power, but we cannot leave off this dross of the outside. Tagore, poet of the international flame, says, O God, I see. There's a great wealth in you. Why I cannot throw away the filth or the dust of this body. Knowing fully well, we do realize intellectually. And all masters who say, what do they say? They say, God first and world next. And what do we say? We say, world first and God may come after. Truly speaking, we are not after God, we are after world. We pray God, why most of us, we want worldly things. Had that not been the competency with God, nobody would have thought of God too, you see. A weaker man prays before some stronger person. So whatever goes out from the heart of our hearts, they are already He's watching our every action. Ask and it shall be given unto you. This is what all masters say. 
So this is your first thing, uh, press, leave much press on that very part. I've been requesting, directing, re I've been begging of you people through my circulars and verbal talks too, and still if you do not do it, we should. So that is the first thing there. What will happen? Now you have eyes. You see? When you wish you miss with your open eyes, you have so much control over your sight, while open eyes you do not see. <coughs> this we can develop, you see? Newton was sitting by a roadside, solving certain mathematical problems. He was so much absorbed in these problems that the band passed by him while playing. He did not hear. Why? Until this attention, which is the outcome of our souls, or with the outgoing faculties, these outgoing faculties do not work. Somebody passed by, asking, well, Newton, has any band passed by this way? No, I don't know. You might have got experience in your own life, when you are sitting very much absorbed in some thought, somebody calls you, you do not hear. Somebody comes, sits by you and you are absorbed. No, you don't feel who has come and who is gone. So this is the training of the attention, what is called the Surya Yoga, you see. So when that is set, you see, you might be sitting and hundreds of people and still be all around. This is what Emerson said. When he wanted all loneliness, he went to an inn, you see, where hundreds come and hundreds go. Because there is no concern with anybody, he is absorbed in his own thought. So if you think that you should leave the world and go to the outside world in the wilderness, there also you have got, you see, animals and trees and everything, your attention will be done outside. The only thing required is to control all outgoing factors. And how to do it? That you can learn from those who have done it and follow his instruction. So naturally, when everything is set, you might have experience in your life too. When you are cut off from every outside, you feel a sort of rest and peace. At times, not every day, but at times it does. When you are cut off, quite absorbed from everything, you feel a sense of pleasure, rest, bliss, peace. Naturally what happens? We are after having that peace prolonged. Naturally, you see, we are children of light, as I told you, like a candle flame. The source is up. All we want to go, even you turn his face downward, even then it will go down. Our soul is of God, you see, of light. It is bound by the outgoing faculties and the bodies. When it is liberated, it will go up. You see, it is but natural. Then naturally, the true rest comes. How we withdraw our out attention from outside, we enter this laboratory of the man body, you see. Just from the burning rays of the sun, when you enter some room, hot, very hot outside, when you enter the air conditioned room, how feels, how rest you feel? 
It is something like that. You feel it at rest. Some glimpses, when Master comes, only Nārti shows you how to withdraw from outside and enter this laboratory of the man-body. But he also shows you how to rise above senses and have some when, when there is no questioning of mind, when intellect is at rest, naturally that truth it becomes refulgent. You see light. If you are questioning why this is, why that is not, why that has not come, then mind is not still. That truth will be still. So what he feels, you see, at that time, the experience of God in the form of light, and sound. This is first thing. As you rise, the Master gives you an experience first to how to rise about this iron curtain of the man-body. Then as you day-to-day practice, you rise about the astral body, the causal body, the super-causal body. You day-to-day more bliss, more joy, everything like Saint Tulsidas, he says when he, ro- he rose, about this body consciousness, reach the causal plane, he had the experience of bliss and jaya, he thought of where that the most and the highest of all. And he says when he transcended the causal plane into the super-causal and beyond, he thought perhaps this causal plane was only a washing room <laughs> as compared with, to that. Those who had tasted that bliss, they are here in the world, but they are bound, you see. Masters are going the hard, under the order of God, you see. Mani jai parasahana hai guruji pani Jai Parasahana hai, Chindari hai Parasat Guru di Pani. Pani Thagav Guru Kheri, Pani Thagav Guru Kheri, Pani Sera, Pani Chindari Parasat Guru Di Bahani Jai Parasahona Chindari Parasat Guru Di Bahani Jai Parasahona Chindari Parasat Guru Di Bahani Jin ko na dar kar maha hove, Jin ko na dar kar maha hove, Jai Parasahona Jindari Parasat Guru Di Bani Pivo Amarit Sadaraho Hari Ranga Pivo Amarit Sadaraho Hari Ranga Chak 
पियो सारंग पानी चिंडारिए हर सतगुरु दी बहानी जय फार सहोनाए जिंदारिए फार सतगुरु दी बहानी जय फार सहोनाए जिंदारिए फार सतगुरु दी बहानी काहे नानक साधह गावो काहे नानक साधह गावो एहो साची पानी जिंदारी ए फार सतगुरु दी बहानी ए फार सहोना ए जिंदारी ए फार सतगुरु दी बहानी जय फार सहोनाए जिंदारिए फार सतगुरु दीवानी